Let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, and uh, Anna will read for us. Matthew chapter 6, starting in verse 1. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who is in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses." And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light, but if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So we've been in this series on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, it's the largest body of teaching Jesus ever gave us. And in chapter 5, he, we looked at our earthly relationships, right? This messy uh, relationship maze we have to navigate over 70 or 80 years with other people, family, and so forth. And Jesus went back to the law. And he said, you have heard it said of old. And he wasn't really breaking down the commandments. He was breaking down the interpretation of those commandments, which had become very burdensome for the people. And he brings out like a higher law, the law of love, what God always intended, that we would love our enemies and that we would uh, always be truth tellers and we would be people of integrity. And it's just a beautiful thing Jesus brings out. Now, he ends that part by saying, you be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's a head-scratcher for me. Uh, my shoulders slump a little, like, oh my gosh, I have to be like God, God is perfect. But see, the penny drops there. 
What Jesus is talking about is we can't do this on our own. We're powerless on our own. We need a transformation. We need, we need a, a new heart, a new mind. Uh, what Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. And so many of us have had that radical experience where God comes in for this heart of stone, he's a heart of flesh. And now there's this, there's this joy, and we still struggle, but there's this, there's this idea that we want to be people that tell the truth. We want to be people that when it comes to sexuality, we're above board and we want to serve the God who has created us, and we want his law to live inside of us, and we want this love of another kind to invade us. Now, in chapter 6, Jesus gives us the cure for our powerlessness when he talks about our heaven relationship with God. There's two words you should circle in Matthew chapter 6 if you go back, if you listen to Anna read it. It's the word Father, I think it appears eight times, and the word reward appears seven times. Jesus invites us into intimacy with God. He calls God our heavenly father. See, guys, Christianity is not about information. It's not about knowledge. Knowledge is a wonderful thing. I, I love knowledge. I'm, I'm curious. I love to read. I love to know things about God. I read scriptures and books. But at the end of the day, Jesus said it's all about intimacy. It's all about intimacy with the God who created us. And in chapter 6, Jesus gives us the source of power in the intimacy with the Father through what we call the spiritual disciplines of prayer, fasting, and giving. Now, there are many more, but these three were the pillars of Judaism. They're probably the three most common that you and I know. Now, for the people listening to Jesus that day and for me for 21 years, this was drudgery. In fact, I was thinking this week, I'm not sure I ever prayed except a rote prayer like the Our Father. In fact, the school I went to, I had to write it a hundred times or recite it a hundred times when I was bad. And believe it or not, I was bad a lot. You probably don't know that about me, but uh, I was a pretty bad kid for a while. So uh, I wasn't a giver, and I certainly never fasted. Couldn't eat meat on Friday, but I found loopholes around that. Wait to you know order a pizza. Wait till twelve o five. You know, so so it was all drudgery before. Jesus now introduces us to this delight. That there is a God in heaven. So this morning we're going to talk about the delight of prayer, the delight of fasting, and the delight of giving. And here's how we're going to do it. I'm going to talk about giving. I've asked Pastor Bob Banks to talk about prayer because I've learned more about the practicality of prayer from Bob than anyone else. And then I've asked Anna Walker-Roberts to talk about fasting. We launched the Ardmore campus about a year ago and Anna and her team have been fasting on Thursdays, and I've watched that from a distance, and it's been pretty amazing. So wherever you are in your journey, we want to get into these three disciplines, and I want to start with giving. Now, here's how we're going to do it. Um, we have a clock we're going to put up on the screen. For those of you who have been around, uh, we have gone to Q Conference. We've done some Q Conference here, and Q Conferences are like TED Talks for Christians, and they give you a countdown clock. So we're each going to get eight minutes, and here's the good thing about countdown clocks. If you don't like what the person is saying, at least you know how long you got to endure it, right? <laughs> if you like what the person's saying, it'll be like, oh man, I hope time stops, and you know, th this is pretty cool. And then the other thing is when children's ministry says we've gone too long, they can't blame me, right? So that's all the reasons why I have a countdown clock. So guys, start my eight minutes, and I want to talk about giving. The first thing I want to talk about giving in your text is Jesus said, when you give. He didn't say if you give. Giving in the ancient world 
uh, was not common, right? In fact, you know what was common in the ancient world if you were suffering? Sucks to be you. Really was. That's what it was. Like, man, gosh, that, that's a horrible thing, but I don't have enough to help you out. Uh, what we know in the Western world about giving and philanthropy has all come from Jesus and the Old Testament and the Scriptures. Now, the Hebrews were givers. They were required of God to give. But um, I want to tell you a story that will kind of give you an entrance into my journey about giving. So my first day at college, I'm an economics major. I go to statistics class. And the teacher told us two things in my first class I never forgot. It's only, like the only two things I remember from college. Um, the first one he said is, if, uh, do you ever have 30 people in a room, two people have the same birthday? I'm like, what? There's 365 days in a year. He said, no, if you have 30 people in a room, uh, there are two people here with the same birthday. Now, I got to tell you this. If you've ever gone on a trip with me or taken a class and I've ever had 30 people in a room, it has never, ever failed. Uh, I took men to Montana one time. We had 28 guys. And we went to a restaurant and... A couple walked in. I said, hey, guys, you're going to get a free dinner no matter what. But uh, we're going to do this birthday deal, and I just need two more people. And lo and behold, it matched. So that works. And he was teaching us the law of probability. The second thing he asked us was, would you rather have a million dollars or a penny doubled a day? And, of course, everybody said, I'll take a million dollars. Well, the penny doubled a day for 30 days, you know, do the math, uh, go on the Internet, is $10 million. Now, that's the law of compound interest. That money grows over time. I was listening to a podcast with a billionaire, and the interviewer said, you know, if our listeners can read one book on finance, one book on your bookshelf that, that they can learn, what would it be? And he said, the tortoise and the hare. Money grows slow. Now, why am I talking about investing? Because when it comes to giving, uh, God is allowing us to invest in his kingdom. Guys, you got to see this. Eight times the word father is used. Seven times the word rewards are used. The pagans, right, they do it to be seen of others. They have the reward. Fasting, prayer, and giving. Wow. The Bible teaches in totality, we don't have the time to go into it, that you and I will give an account for our one and only life, and there will be rewards. Paul said it will go through the refiner's fire. Some will be wood, hay, and stubble. It will just burn up. Things you thought you did with the right motive, just no reward. And then other things that you won't even remember will be precious silver and gold. Now, Christians say, oh, man, I don't want any rewards. Well, guess what? It's not up to you. You're getting them. One takeaway from this whole morning is your father is generous to a fault. He's a prodigal God. He's a lavish God. He's a God of abundance who wants to bless you. That's the takeaway from this text. Now, I want to tie this into my journey. I become a Christian at 21. I've never read the Bible. I don't know anything about giving. And I start going to church, and I hear about this thing called tithing. I don't even know what it is. And I find out it's 10%. I'm like, wow. Now, I'm a broke college kid. So I'm making $150 a week. So $15 isn't that bad. But the denomination I came by this long, from, this long wicker basket would come down the pew. And you would throw a dollar. And that was my only paradigm of giving. Now I'm sure people threw a five and a 20, but a dollar was like what I thought it was. Now i got to give 10%. And I'm thinking, wow. 
I had a mentor who came by me and said, Bob, it's like training wheels. Start at 2%, go to 5%, then 7%. And, and guess what? Tithing's under the Old Testament, so giving to God knows no bounds. Takeaway number one I learned at 21 years old. Never try to find ways to get out of giving. Always try ways to increase your giving. This has served me well for 38 years. Always try to find ways to increase giving. Why? Because God is a giver. The Bible says when you give to the poor, you lend to God. Here it's talking about not giving to church. It's talking about almsgiving. Giving to those in need. In other words, keep your eyes open for opportunity all through the day. See, the religious leaders, the scribes, the Pharisees, were all about the tithe in the temple. Uh, some people tell us that the offering buckets look like trumpets. And uh, when they would drop their coins, people would hear it ring all the way through the temple, and the Pharisees would get their reward. Jesus said, no, keep your eyes open all through the day, all through the year, for opportunities to give. Number one, always look for ways to increase your giving, uh, even outside of church. Um, I think I shared this before. God's got me on this thing with tipping. Not so much in restaurants, or those people do quite well, but, but maids. You know, when I go to a hotel room, maids don't make a lot of money. Most people don't tip. And I have this wrestling with God, match with God every time I'm in a hotel where God's saying, how about if you be as generous here as you are in church? Here's my takeaway number two. Comes right out of the text. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand's doing. Now, that has nothing to do with at the end of the year when you get your giving statement and put it in the IRS. Uh, to be a good steward, you should know what you have given. But what I have learned is I should look for secret ways to give, ways that nobody know. Now, I'm going to tell you one, and I'll lose my reward, but it's worth it if you'll grow. <laughs> so I've been on a lot of missions trips, and uh, there was one particular mission trip where right in the heart of a slum, I felt the voice of God say, support this man. He's not in ministry the people in ministry told me I shouldn't support him. Uh, I've read the books when helping hurts. I know the whole deal. But God told me to support this man. And we've been in touch by email. No one knows I give to him, except now. Um, I give by wire, by cash. It's just something I do in secret outside of all my giving. I'm not even sure I've ever shared it with my wife. And so I have secret ways to give that no one will ever know. And it served me well. The third one is a very strong one. Jesus said, don't lay up treasure here. Now, you can have treasure. But here you're going to alarm it, insure it, it's going to wear out. He said, send it ahead. Do you know why? Because where that treasure is, there will be a reward and your heart will be there. The tendency for you and me is not to go out and commit adultery. It's to have hard, cynical hearts. And I want to send my money to a place. And I want to be a giver and watch God resupply. So that every day that I get up, that I'm in this giving and receiving with God. And that my heart stays pure because I live in America. And the monster of more is always on my back to build bigger barns. And whenever I give and I lend to the Lord... It breaks the monster of more in me. No. 
Good morning. I'm Bob Banks, one of the pastors at CC Delco. I'm going to talk about prayer. Prayer is simply talking with God, and that includes listening. For over 45 years, I've been talking with God, and while I've never heard his audible voice, he has spoken to me many, many times, sometimes directly, sometimes through his word, and sometimes through my wife, Judy, and more often than not, through the daily circumstances of my life. Probably one of the most intense periods of prayer for me was when I was the project manager for constructing and funding this church building over a four-year period. And I was praying and praying, and we got toward the end of the project. We had had a successful building campaign. We'd been to the bank. We got all the money we could get, and we were $500,000 short of completing the project. And I'm on my knees saying, God, you've got to help us. What are we going to do? His answer was absolutely amazing. And I'm going to share that with you at the end. Let's look at prayer in the Bible. If you look in the Old Testament, many of the notable figures were men and women of prayer. By the time that Jesus got onto the scene, Judaism had become very formal, very ritualistic. It was steeped in tradition. And picking up the text here in verse 5, Jesus looks out and he sees Pharisees, these great men of teaching from the synagogue and from the temple. And they're there standing on a street corner on their way to the temple, and they're belting out these flowery prayers and these groups of people around them. Jesus said, don't be like those hypocrites. He's talking to his disciples. Don't follow them. I know their heart, and they're stony cold. No, he said, what I want you to do is I want you to get into private. Find a secret place, and there you can get alone with God. Their reward was all those people. Your reward will be building a relationship with your heavenly Father. Then he goes on, and he gives another caution. You're going to see Gentiles and heathens in there heaping up these empty phrases of prayer. They think their many words are going to count extra for God. Forget that. God already knows what you're going to pray before you even pray. He knows what your needs are. So he said, here's what you need to do. And he says, in this manner, in this fashion, and he lays out what we would call the Lord's Prayer. It's not really a prayer Jesus would have prayed. It should better be called the disciples' prayer. So I dug through this, and I found at least 10 different parts of what should be in our prayer life. And I don't have time to unpack this today, but I would ask you on your own, dig in and see if you can find those. Talking about my own prayer journey, I'd say the first 35 years of my life, my prayers were pretty shallow. Then I was saved at the age of 35. Jesus came into my heart, and I began to develop a prayer life. During my 40s and 50s, I worked in Philadelphia. And on those mornings, I would be up before the sun came up on my knees praying. Had a stressful job, and that worked well for me. Then on Saturdays, I would pray with my wife, Judy, and we would follow the 
acronym called ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication. I love that. I'm an engineer. I like things organized. And I love praying through that. In my 60s and 70s, I started journaling. What a rich spiritual discipline. And I developed what I call a seven-day prayer journal. Here it is. This is a list, a long list of people's names, and they're divided up among the seven days of the week. And in addition to my daily prayers, I pray this. So on Sunday, it's for folks for salvation. Monday is healing. Tuesday's missionaries. Wednesday, Wednesday is broken marriages, and you can get the idea, and it goes on and on. Do I do this every day? No, sometimes I don't have enough time. Do I think you should do it? Not necessarily, only if God puts it on your heart. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17 that we should pray without ceasing. I don't think that means we should be uttering prayer continuously, but I think what it does mean is our spiritual ears and our spiritual eyes need to be open because God's going to be speaking to us. I'll give an example of one that happened yesterday. I've been praying about this talk. It's challenging. Yesterday, while I was preparing breakfast, God said, don't forget to tell them this. And I said, thank you, God, that's great. <laughs> I pray about all kinds of things. 2013, Judy and I were in Kenya with Pastor Bob. And one day, late in the afternoon, we took a safari ride. So we get into the van, we're out in the bush, and I pray that we will see animals. Pastor Bob says, Bob. So we come around the corner and there's a couple of lions and I said, praise God. He said, Bob. So we go through this, it didn't daunt me, maybe he was embarrassed or upset, I didn't care, I just kept praying. So it's late in the day and it's getting dark. And we came around the corner and I said, God, could we please see a rhinoceros an amazing creature, and there up on the hill, silhouetted against the sky, was not only one rhinoceros, there were six. And I said, praise you, Jesus. <laughs> and Pastor Bob was just there, his eyes closed, shaking his head. I think he was secretly saying, thank you, God. <laughs> I think God has his most serious challenges with me in prayer in the middle of the night. In 2018, in the middle of the night, he said, I want you to sell your house and move into a retirement community now. I thought, you've got to be kidding me. Talked to Judy. We prayed, looked at scripture. We now live at Lima States. We did that. Does God always answer my prayers? If I pray in the spirit and I pray according to his word, I think he always hears my prayers. But his answers fall into three categories. Yes, no, and wait. Sometimes I've been waiting, I'm still waiting for years, decades, but I'm trusting that God's going to answer. Well, you've been waiting, and this is a short wait for the answer. So I'm on my knees and saying, God, what am I going to do? How are we going to raise this $500,000? He said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to these different people in the congregation and ask them to give loans, interest-free loans. So I started doing that, knocking on doors, and we got 15 people to commit between 10 
and $50,000. We were up to $400,000, and Pastor Bob went to Joe Foch, and he gave us $100,000, and praise God. Here we are. To tell you guys a little bit about my fasting journey, I'm going to take you back to 13-year-old Anna. I was in the seventh grade, and I was practicing Lent for the first time. I grew up in an area in Texas where there were not a lot of Catholics, and so I had never heard of Lent before, but somehow someone in my Baptist church heard about it and decided we should try it. So I gave up chocolate for Lent when I was 13, and my main strategy was just don't come in contact with chocolate. Like, make sure there's not any in the house, I won't be tempted by it, and then it won't be an issue for me to keep fasting chocolate. This worked well for a couple of weeks, and then on spring break, I went on a cruise with my best friend's family, and the first night we go to this, you know, big swanky cruise ship restaurant, and we walk in, and the theme of the night is chocolate. And there are chocolate fountains all over the room. And I remember just kind of taking this little gasp and thinking, I'm not going to make it. You know, now that I'm confronted with this temptation, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Now, I'd like to cut to a couple of weeks ago. I was sitting in my office in Ardmore, and I had, it was a day that I was fasting. And I was holding a bag of Cheetos, like that you would put in your lunch, like a little tiny bag of Cheetos, with the same feeling, like, I don't know if I'm going to make it. Um, so I, I say that to tell you that my journey has definitely been humbling, but I'd like to tell you a little bit about what I've learned from the word and from the practice of fasting. So we're going to start by looking in the text. In verse 16, where it talks about fasting, Jesus says, and when you fast, so he's assuming that we're going to fast. Bob pointed that out in his section as well. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. This idea of hypocrites came up rhythmically in the text in all these different sections. When he says hypocrites, a hypocrite would be someone who says one thing and does another. That's how we would use the word. But in this time, the same word for hypocrite was used to describe an actor who would perform in a big Greek or Roman amphitheater. And so he's saying, don't put on a show, right? Don't do this for external favor. The Pharisees were known to fast about twice a week, and they would do something to their faces to make themselves look gloomy while they were fasting so everyone would know. Now, I don't know anyone who, like, puts ashes on their faces while they're fasting and goes out in public. I don't think this is going to be an issue for our congregation. But maybe for us in this time, it might have something more to do with what we put on the Internet or what we put on social media. I don't know anyone that's posting about fasting on social media either, but that idea of the motive of our heart. Are we trying to get attention for a practice that was meant to be done in secret with God, or are we doing it in secret with God? So Jesus tells us, but when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. This points me to the feeling that fasting is something that is secret between me and God, that should be happening in my relationship with him. Bob talked about the idea of spiritual disciplines. So spiritual discipline being some kind of obedient action that we are invited into in our faith, that we might more deeply experience what it means to be a follower of Christ, that we might flourish more in our lives, that we might see God move and grow us in unexpected ways. There's so much about God that is mysterious, right? 
but spiritual disciplines are a practical thing that he gives us. We have control over how much we give. We have control over if we choose to fast. So he invites us into those things, but then it's up to us to decide if we will practice them. So Bob mentioned that about a year and a half ago when we started the Ardmore campus, I was meeting with our launch team and Johan suggested that we all fast on the same day together and use the time that we would have had meals to pray for the Ardmore campus. Now, fasting and prayer and scripture are often right beside each other. If you see fasting, you usually see prayer beside it. There's some kind of relationship between those two things. So we decided to take one day a week to give up two or three meals and to spend the time that we would have eaten those meals either praying alone or praying with each other that God would move through the Ardmore campus. Now, the fourth week that we were doing this, I remember feeling really frustrated that I still felt hungry. I thought that fasting was something like running that I would get better at and would be able to go further after I had practiced it some. And I, I was praying and I said, God, I just, I feel so frustrated that I'm not better at this. Why am I still hungry after doing this for a month? And he really invited me into that hunger as part of the reason that I fast. Like, I don't fast to get better at it so I won't feel hungry. I fast to feel hungry because that hunger is where God teaches me something about myself and about him. In one way, that hunger has been very humbling because I get hangry. I don't know about y'all, but if you haven't eaten in eight hours, then maybe you have a headache. Maybe you feel irritable. Maybe you're impatient. Uh, maybe you don't want to be as nice to your coworkers. And the sin that has been exposed in me through fasting is something that God has convicted me of. And every time I fast, I bump up against some of those sins and have to confess them and continue to grow and improve at that. On the other side of that, fasting not, is not a punishment. It's not something that we do to make ourselves feel bad. But on the other side of fasting and giving up food, I have found an incredibly great clarity in my relationship with God. That it feels like I'm able to silence some of the demands of the world on my body and on my spirit and hear more directly from him. Um, I, I've felt just, uh, I guess, like a gentle quietness that I'm invited into when I'm fasting that I don't find on days when I'm not fasting. The other thing I've learned is that fasting shows me how tempted I am by food, but at the same time as believers, we're often equally tempted by our sinful appetites for things. We want to feel pleasure. We want to feel better right away. We want to have all of our needs met. And God invites us into self-control instead of having all of those needs met. By fasting, I think it's a weapon through which we get to wage war against those desires. We get to practice self-control in a physical way with our hunger so that when my sin appetite flares up, I have some tools and some muscles ready to whip out for that. Now, I will acknowledge that there may be medical issues that some people in this room would have that would keep you from practicing certain kinds of fasting. So if that's you, if you have had an eating disorder at some point in your life, or if you have diabetes or a blood sugar issue, you might need to check with your doctor before you jump full into fasting because it does have a physical effect on our bodies. But for most of us, we fall into this category of disciples that Jesus said, when you fast, that it's something that he wants us to do in our faith. And he says, as Bob mentioned, that there will be a reward. I don't know what that reward will be, and I'm not sure when that reward will come. But there's something when we enter into this act of radical obedience that the world would never practice, and we give up food for a period of time and pray that God is going to do something. He promises that he will, and we believe it because Christ said it in our faith. So I'll leave us with this thought.
When we become Christians, we're called to give up a lot more than a few meals. We're called to die to self, to put our old ways behind us, and to pretty much give up everything in our life in order to more fully experience Christ. And when we stand in heaven someday, and we look in the face of our Savior and our friend Jesus Christ, and we are in the throne room with God, all of the appetites that we've had for Cheetos and chocolate will pale, and our hunger for him will be fully satisfied. So I'm pretty sure when Anna gets to heaven, there'll be a big chocolate fountain, and Bob will see a menagerie of animals that he's never seen before, and uh, God will probably play a practical joke on me for making fun of them. Uh, in all seriousness, Jesus said, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The troubling part about that verse is he tied it to our love for our enemies. See, everything in the chapter is counterintuitive. Everything in the chapter is, look, the pagans do all this. other. The pagans pray, the pagans give, the pagans love their families and their friends. But you've got to be different. You've got to be perfect like your heavenly Father is imperfect. Oh my gosh, my perfection is tied to my love for people that disagree with me. Oh my gosh, how powerless I am. But when I get in touch with God, it all makes sense because, as I said, God is generous. Ready for this? He's generous to the just and the unjust. Because later Matthew's going to tell us it rains on the just and the unjust. The sun comes up on the just and the unjust. And God is waiting and longing. This is why time, 2,000 years have gone by. He doesn't want anybody to perish. But all would come to eternal life as we have. So the spiritual disciplines are an invitation for the mind of God to wash over us, for the power of God to be realized. And it's amazing because Jesus ends this section um, and really tells us that you can't serve two masters. You can't serve God and money. You're going to love one or hate the other. Now, listen, you can have... You can serve two people, right? I can have a job here and I can have another job. The word there for servant is slave. You can't, have two, you can't be a slave to two people is the idea. You're going to love one, hate the other. It's just the way life works. So if you go down the path to money, it's going to grab hold of you and you're going to forget God. But if you go down the path of God, verse 33, seek first the kingdom of God, all these things will be added to you. Guys, I want to leave you with this. There's two things that will block your relationship with God. Security in this life and what other people think. Jesus said, look, all these things will be added. I'll take care of you. I'll give you everything you need. He told us to look at the birds. How much more value to have birds? birds? You look at birds, right? They're doing fine, God said. He said, look at these lilies. Aren't they beautiful? Not even Solomon was arrayed like these. By the way, Solomon was the richest man that ever lived. Solomon's master was money. What did it do for Solomon? Read the book of Ecclesiastes, you'll find out. By the way, Solomon, who took Israel to the zenith of her power, almost never mentioned in the New Testament. When he's mentioned, it's a backhand compliment, like here in Matthew chapter 6. And when you go to Israel, he's never mentioned. There's, everything's named after David. Even McDonald's is McDavid's, right? But you can't find anything named after Solomon. Because he had the wrong master. 
Life's all about finding the right master. The day I found Christ at 21, I didn't know my future hell, but I knew this, God would take care of me. And when I became a Christian, I was saved in what was called the prosperity gospel, the name it and claim it. You've probably seen some documentaries or some films about that today. There was a great takeaway from that in that we believe that if we gave, God really would resupply. That was a wonderful takeaway. But guys, we never give, we never pray, we never fast to get something out of God. It's something he'll, all, he'll do. It's what the Protestants uh, obtained from the Puritans. We live before an audience of one. God's not the great slot machine in the sky. He's a benevolent father who wants to reward and bless us in this life and the life to come. So my admonition, and I think what you've heard from all of us, is we have this invitation to intimacy with God, to grow and to learn and to receive the power of God. Whether that's entry level for you this morning, whether you're going to restart in that journey, wherever you are, this is how we do life with God. This is where the power comes from. And the great payoff is one day your reward will be in heaven.